This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case I got bored. Thank you everyone for downloading episode 211 of Literary Treks, your dedicated your dedicated Star Trek books and comics show here on Trek FM. I'm just one of your hosts. Joining me as he does every week is the Bashir to my Garrick, Bruce Gibson. Bruce, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, Garrick. How are you? <laughs> I, I mean I mean Dan, how are you doing? I what I'm a, wait, who's Bashir? <laughs> We'll go with you. <laughs> okay. That's what I thought. Excellent. So, yeah, I don't know if I can trust you, Garrick. I mean, Dan or what, whoever you think you are. But, yeah, it's well, great you, to be here. You can trust me that we're going to have a really interesting episode today because in the feature, we're going to be talking about Deep Space Nine, A Stitch in Time, the novel all about Garrick by the man himself, Andrew J. Robinson. But first, we have our news segment, and we've got a, something special for you in the news segment here as well. There's a new recent release called A Field Guide to the Aliens of Star Trek The Next Generation. And we've got the author with us today, Zachary Auburn. Zachary, welcome aboard. Thank you. Good to be here. Excellent. It's really great to have you. So... Let's jump right into it. A field guide to the aliens of Star Trek The Next Generation is not really your typical book. Uh, I, Bruce and I had the pleasure of taking a look at this and reading through it. And it's a really interesting book you've crafted here. Tell us a little bit about the process of putting this together. So this book started out as a series of six zines. Um, you know, I had previously written a book about the Golden Girls, and I knew I wanted to do another project that involved a TV show, and Star Trek is probably the TV show I'm most passionate about. I really want to talk about Star Trek, um, but at the same time, I wanted to talk about, I want to tell a story where the author didn't realize that they were saying something without realizing it, that they were mm -hmm. telling a story like in subtext. Um, you know, the sort of inspiration for that is I was thinking about the Kurt Vonnegut novel, Cat's Cradle. There's a character who's a professional indexer, and they're on a plane, and they're reading someone else's index, 
you know, this author who's done their own index on a book, and you can tell by reading the index that the this author is a closet homosexual just by the way they've indexed their book. You know, all the things, it's basically things they've said without realizing they're saying it. And I wanted to do something like that. And the way I decided to do that was to write about all the aliens of Star Trek, Next Generation, but per, from the perspective of an 11-year-old, um, specifically an 11-year-old 11, 11 who did not have a very happy home life. Um, and in the process of talking about the aliens, like basically couldn't help but talk about all the other things that were going on in his life, um, specifically just sort of the him not getting the, the love and support that he needed from his mom. Um, so I did one issue of those for the first season. Um, and then you know, a lot of people liked it. So I decided to do a second season for the second season. I moved it forward a year in the author's life because this, the first book was written as if it was actually written by an 11 year old in the year 1990. So the second issue was season two written by a 12 year old in 91 and so on and so forth. And I did six total issues, um, where by the end, the author is a very, very angry teenager grousing about how lazy the makeup artists on Star Trek are because, you know, just another alien with ridges on their forehead. What the, what is this? This is nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, reading this book, I, I honestly didn't know what to expect because I, I didn't know much about it starting to read it. And the voice of the author is, I, I think, a lot of fun to begin with. You know, it's really interesting. And then it pulls you into this story, into the story of the darkness that's in his life and what's going on. And uh, it, it does a really good job of really grabbing you and making you feel for this person. And, you know, the shift is, is very subtle to begin with. And I think it, it's it's definitely a very interesting take. Thank you. My My hope is that it will be the funniest, saddest, weird, weirdest Star Trek book that anyone ever reads. Yeah, I would say that probably is true for me. So I'll just let you know. Um, <laughs> yes. I, I started reading this at work and I had to close my office door because I was laughing too hard. And I knew somebody's <laughs> going to come and go, where are you laughing about? And I wasn't going to show them. But it, it uh. it's so hilarious the way it starts off. And I had to. Uh, message Dan and say you've got to read this like soon because it's hilarious but and and I think we'll touch on some of those here in a moment but then what what starts to happen is it becomes less and less funny still some funny things in there but it starts right. to become pretty dark and it's like it just really started to make me feel bad for this this kid and 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 I just like oh my gosh how's this going to end? And I mean, it's, this really is a field guide to the aliens of Star Trek, the next generation. That's totally what it is. You can go in and just, you're reading it, what each of these aliens are from a perspective of this kid, but you're also learning about what he's going through in his life. And each year he becomes even more rough. I mean, just in just the way he describes things becomes just even more angry. And I, mm -hmm. I was I was just not expecting this at all. So I, I was blown away. Thank you. That means a lot. Thank you. Exactly what I was hoping for. Oh, perfect. Well, I mean, you've definitely achieved that. And I, I think something that jumped out to me about this book that was really interesting was 
you know, seven years is a long time in the life of a kid. And, you know, the period that this covers, I think basically grade five to grade 12, you know, if, of this kid's life, it's, it's a 12, yeah. seven to 12. Um, and it, it's amazing, you know, how much of his life that this series has impacted. And it made me think of, you know, my life as a fan and where I was watching these episodes and, you know, the experiences of other people and what other people get out of, you know, the media they consume and, and that sort of thing. It really raised a lot of those questions and, you know, that, that this provided an outlet for this person, uh, the protagonist of the, of the story for lack of a better term, uh, it was a really interesting way to approach that story. You know, my, I will say my mom is great. The, the, the mom in this book is not my mom, but this book is very, very autobiographical. There's a lot of details of the Joshua Chapman, who is the author of the book. His life is, are taken from my life. And, you know, I think having Star Trek save your life is a pretty uh, common experience for people. Uh, at least people who are listening to this podcast. It's something I think a lot of us can relate to. Um, and I just want to sort of convey what that was like for me. So his opinion, Joshua's opinion of Betazoids, it would be <laughs> a reflection of your opinion on Betazoids. When I was 11, yes. Okay, so let's let's read an excerpt here. I'm going to read about Betazoids yeah. real quick. So it says, and this is from the perspective of Joshua, who's 11 years old. We don't get to see these aliens too much other than Counselor Troy and her mom or find out a lot about them. They have naked weddings, I guess, which seems like a bad idea. If I was getting married in a Betazoid wedding, I would be really worried because everyone would be looking at me. But there would be lots of naked women there, and I might get an erection. It is like an even worse version of the nightmare where you're in school in your underpants. The big deal with Betazoids is that they are psychic, which seems like it would make them cool, but they are mostly just annoying. Counselor Troy is half Betazoid, which means that she can sense emotions, but mostly she just says things that they know already plus she really she's really weak and spends a lot of time looking like she has a headache which yeah she does half the time it is like she is about to start crying and i don't know how the other people on the ship can deal with it her mom is full betazoid and she is really annoying and pushy there might be other betazoids out there who are annoying who are not annoying and use their powers in interesting ways but if so we don't see them that's your description of the Betazoids in this book. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that was excellent. And, you know, I think, like you say, echoing a lot of the feelings that, that a lot of Trek fans might have had reading or watching these episodes. And I love the way you kind of um, delve into data. And a lot of Star Trek fans really love data. And in this book, it's kind of taken to... Um, an extreme in this particular person who, you know, wants to live without emotion and doesn't see any purpose for them be because they just cause pain and that sort of thing. But I think, I feel like that echoes the experiences of a lot of kids growing up who, you know, say things and get angry and, and, you know, face a lot of situations that they don't understand 
And if they didn't cry about it, you know, things would be easier and that sort of thing. I really, it, that part really spoke to me. I thought that was really interesting. Thank you. Yeah, that's definitely like how I felt growing up. But just like the day you're like, oh, it would be so great. And even sometimes as an adult, life would just be a lot easier if like, you know, I could like flip those emotions off. They're, they get pretty pesky sometimes. But I have, I have as, as, you know, an adult type person, I, I've learned to appreciate Troy a lot more um, and learn to see the wisdom. Like, you know, emotions are occasionally useful too. Excellent. Well, my, I think I have to say a lot of my favorite parts had to be uh, where, you know, there was an alien race or a character who was being, I guess, abusive would be the right word, or somebody who was taking advantage of someone or, or gaslighting them. And this, the voice of this character, of, of, the, of the protagonist, of the author, um, it's, it's really unique to me because he's, he made me see a lot of things in those episodes that I hadn't necessarily seen the first time around. So I think like, even as someone who would consider himself an Uber Star Trek fan and knows everything about the series backwards and forwards, the perspective this brings, I think is more than enough reason to pick up this book for any Star Trek fan out there, because it really does offer this really interesting perspective. Yeah, I've definitely like writing this book. Had you know, I basically rewatched the entire series for the eleven billionth time, and like watched it from a new angle, and it did give me like the new appreciation for just basically you know sort of how human centric the Federation is, um, or human exceptionalist. You know, even starting from the very beginning of the show where Q is putting humanity on trial, but half the people he's putting on trial are not humans. They're androids and Klingons and beta Zets. Um, it made me realize sort of like, it really hit for home for me that Star Trek is a show about a utopian society that is written by very flawed people. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think the one that jumped out at me that I had never considered, and, and it's kind of just a throwaway line in the episode but in the episode Gambit, when the alien is talking about uh, Picard fighting a bunch of people and this person who is not human says Picard was fighting a group of aliens and the author points out, well, wouldn't Picard be an alien to this guy too? Why wouldn't he refer to him as that? I just, stuff like that really made me stop and go, hey, you're right. <laughs> Yeah, or even the traveler. The traveler uh, does. Uh, he man manipulates warp fields with his mind because he's got big fat fingers and he must be clumsy. So right. he has to do things with his head. You know. <laughs> right. I have to say, like, it's definitely like changed how I still view Star Trek, or I watch Star Trek. You know, going forward, um, I remember watching the season premiere or the second episode of Discovery where they are, you know, rigging the Klingon corpses floating in space with explosives. I'm like, wait a second. That's a violation of the Geneva Convention. They're desecrating corpses on the battlefield and rigging them with bombs. That's totally a crime against crime of war or war crime. Mm -hmm. That's true. See, it's, it, it's like, it's really watching the series. 
you know, I think we think these things sometimes when we watch the show, but we just, it's like, we just don't consciously always remember it or write it down. But then going back, like you said, and watching the episodes and trying to do it from a perspective of a, of a kid. And maybe as yourself is like pretending you're, you know, when you were that age, you start to notice those things that like, yeah, why, why would they say they're aliens? If Picard's an alien to them too. And just all right. those things, you know? I mean, that's that's yeah. what makes it great. And then it's it's presented like a zine and the fact that the first chapter or the first season is all handwritten and and pictures are pasted on there. And then we get to the next season or chapter and and you can tell it looks like maybe it was done on a typewriter and stuff. So it does look like a collection of zines from the 90s that you just like published and put all together in one book. And, and I thought that was. Great. Yeah, I did. I spent a lot of time crafting the look of you know when yeah so the first issue is done in my very very bad curse of writing so i give you a lot of credit for being able to even read that betazoid entry out loud um the second one is done like a dot matrix printer um i think the third through fifth ones what i did is i went back and looked at my report cards um from that time period to see what font the computers at my high school were using. Um, and then all, you know, all the photos in the book because they wouldn't have memory alpha back then, but they also wouldn't. Um, I took basically Polaroids of Star Trek episodes on my TV and I put those on the photocopier so that they would be just as bad as, you know, the author would have had them be in 1991. Excellent. And yeah, that, that feeling really comes across like uh, a lot of the visual effects. Like I think the entry for the Iconians shows the Iconian probe on the view screen and it's all, you know, very washed out because it's this bright image on a screen and you know, that, that kind of realism that it lends to that is really cool. So. Yeah. I've always, I've always gone for as much authenticity as I can in any of my, any of the stuff I've written or how I, how I craft them, I guess. So Zachary, you know, I read this one entry uh, about the Antikins and the, and how they look like dogs and it reminds Joshua of his cat. Uh-huh. Did, does your cat lick your hair? Like Joshua's cats lick his and is it soothing? The cat for you? that I had at the time, the cat that I had when I wrote this, it, yes, that was based on uh, Linus, my, my cat. When I, Linus, Linus is no longer with us, but oh. yes, but yeah, no, that was based on, that was based on Linus and it was great. <laughs> I, you know, whenever I was feeling down, I just lay in bed and he would come lick him ahead for a while. I'm like, all right, feels pretty good. Well, you've written a really interesting, really incredible book here. And, uh, you know, for any Star Trek fans out there that are interested in picking this up, I urge you to do so it's a very interesting read you've put together a really cool story here where if people want to grab this where will they be able to purchase it um they can purchase it of course from amazon um from Barnes noble and uh, not so much Barnes noble they're kind of bad about this uh powells.com they're great um or from the publisher themselves which is uh devastator press excellent but safest Safest bet is probably Amazon. Yeah, that's uh, that's where I grabbed my copy. Um, I, I grabbed the ebook copy, uh, and 
it's it's very faithfully reproduced. It looks really good here. And uh, yeah, I definitely recommend anybody who is interested should grab this because uh, it's it's really cool. Can I mention my other book real quick, my non-Star Trek book? Oh, please, yeah. Uh, my other book that's out right now is How to Talk to Your Cat About Gun Safety, also available pretty much everywhere. <laughs> I did see that when I picked this up, and I have to say that the title really uh, is really fascinating. I'm really curious about that one. I might have to grab it. <laughs> Yeah, the title definitely sells, sells a lot of copies of that book. Excellent. Well, if people want to follow you online and, and kind of keep up with what you're up to, is there do you have a Twitter or anything that people can follow you on? Uh, yeah, my website is ZacharyAuburn.com. It is Z-A-C-H-A-R-Y-A-U-B-U-R-N.com. Um, or my Twitter is RobotUnicorn. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us uh, and talking to us about the a field guide to the aliens of star trek the next generation uh definitely a really cool experience yeah and we really enjoyed it and thank you for uh putting that book together because it was it was a it was fun and also sad in a in a way and anybody that's <laughs> listening needs to check this book out to, to really appreciate what it is we're talking about mm-hmm. awesome thank you guys so much Well, today we are talking about a novel that has long been one of my favorites, and that, of course, is A Stitch in Time by the man who played Garrick himself, Andrew J. Robinson. So to start with, and also I should mention, we have a guest joining us today, not Andrew Robinson, but the next best thing, Justin Ozer. Justin, welcome back to the show. Uh, Good to be here. That's a lot to live up to, to be the next best thing to Andrew Robinson. (laughs) Well, it's it's earned, I think, for sure. <laughs> Thank you. Glad to be here. You look just like him. Sure. Yeah. What the listeners um, cannot see is that I put on my Cardassian makeup so that I look like Garrick. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thanks for coming on the show again. I We love having you aboard and especially to talk about this novel, which, as I said, is one of my favorites. I'm not sure how you guys feel about it, but curious to find that out. Uh, first of all, I want to hear from you guys. How did you first read this book? Is this your first time reading it or is this one that's been on your shelf for a while? Justin, um, you're the guest. You should go first. Okay. There you go. <laughs> this is my second time reading it. The first time was about a year ago. So, Wow. So, Bre- <laughs> uh, This is my second time reading it and my first time was probably... To this book came out at what 2001, I think. 2000, yeah. So I I read it sometime maybe a year after that. It was, it hadn't been out all that long. Yeah, my experience is very similar to that. Uh, This is my second time reading it, but I read it way back shortly after it first came out. I don't think I grabbed it off the shelf and, and whipped through it in like the month of release, but I think it was about a year, year and a half after that. But I read through this one after hearing all the buzz around it because a lot of people really, really love this novel. A lot of people have gone on the record saying this is, if not their favorite Trek novel, definitely up there. And anytime you're on like the Trek BBS, you see the top 10 lists that people do. This one is a frequent, uh, frequent appearance on those lists. So we'll oh, see. Yeah. We'll yeah. see if it lives up to that. <laughs> I'm, re- I'm looking at the inside cover. It was May 2000 when it was first published. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, and yeah, very similar, Dan. Because 
you know, I kept hearing all the buzz. I was going to read it eventually, but it was like, it's so good. It's so good. It's so good. I'm like, oh my gosh, I've got to read this book. And so later I did. Yeah. You know, before I really heard the buzz about it, I actually saw it at a thrift store for like a dollar. And I looked at the the back cover and I was like, oh, it's a really long letter. I don't know if that'll be any good. And I and I didn't get it at the time. This is a couple of years ago. And then I heard all the buzz about it. And I went back. Of course, it was wasn't at the thrift store anymore. And uh, as people might know, this is a book that can be very expensive as a physical book because it's been out of print for a long time. It's very sought after. So um, I have this as an ebook because it was just too expensive for me to get the physical book at this point. Yeah, that's a that's a good question uh, to ask you guys as well. I I have this as a physical copy. Like I said, I bought it way back when, uh, and it's in surprisingly good shape. I notice for books that I have from that period that I read. Uh, you know, usually there's some kind of wear and tear on it, but this one's held up pretty well. Bruce, you you read the physical copy as, as well? I'm assuming. Yes, I have it right here in front of me. It's that's that's a very valuable say, commodity. yes if anybody's interested i'll sell it to you for a thousand dollars no seriously on amazon i think the lowest used book was like 90 dollars last time i saw it wow Wow. there are other places where you can get it for less but i haven't seen anybody get it for less than like 20 or 30 dollars lately it's pretty sought after that's crazy because i think that is because i think they did you know the initial printing and maybe a bit after that but i think it's been out of print for at least 15 years something like that yeah and i mean Physically, it's a, I love, like, let's, let's start by judging it by its cover, I guess. I love the artwork Mm -hmm. on this cover. It's simple, but gorgeous. And I mean, I guess it's fitting for plain, simple Garrick, but it's just Garrick standing, holding uh, an orchid, presumably one of these Edosian orchids that we hear about frequently in the book in kind of, I'm guessing the ruins of Cardassia. And he's got this very thoughtful look on his face, kind of you know, to quote Jordy referring to Cochrane's statues, sort of looking towards the future or something like that. Uh, I I love this cover. It's pretty great. Yeah. Yeah. But that's just uh, one version of the cover. There's, I think, a German cover that's uh, totally different. Uh, And it's got more of a close-up shot of Garrick, and then stars or whatever in the background. So it's a very different one, but it looks, it's more in line with a lot of those covers that you've seen of the German versions those, of the, the novels. Those German covers, they're, they're beautiful. I feel like, I, I like the American mm-hmm. covers that we get, but there's just something like extra special about those, isn't there? Yeah, there's, I think so. there's, there's something to them. <laughs> I think this is one of the few instances where I prefer mm-hmm. the American one over the German one. But lately, uh, sorry to say this, pocketbooks, um, lately, yeah, from the more recent releases, I really like the German covers a lot more. Anyway, (laughs) so coming back to A Stitch in Time, this is a very unique novel, not only in the fact that it's written by the actor that played the character, it's also in a format very different to most typical Star Trek novels. And Justin, you alluded to this a little earlier. It's kind of a series of journal entries or letters to Bashir uh, in Garrick's voice. And uh, it's it's his own history, his kind of... We recently read the autobiography of Jean-Luc Picard. This is kind of similar. It's kind of Garrick's autobiography or at least his memoirs. And we get three different stories, three tracks running through. We've got Garrick's history 
in the form of journal entries from his time as a young man uh, going to school in Cardassia through his career and ending up aboard Terok Nor and then Deep Space Nine. And then we have some of his time aboard Deep Space Nine in the last year of the Dominion War. And then we get the quote-unquote present on Cardassia Prime during the reconstruction following the the defeat of the Dominion. Um, so what did you guys think, first of all, of the format of this book and, and how it was presented? I, I like the format a lot. And I think that, I mean, yeah, what does make it unusual, I mean, it's not the only time we've seen one of the actors that played a character write a book because there's a left hand of destiny that J.G. Hertzler co-wrote, but it's an unusual mm. thing. And um, to see it as like this autobiography of a recurring character, I mean, I think that Garrick is one of those characters that is so memorable and so mysterious and interesting that that can hold your interest. Um, and and I, I like that it was from his perspective because, you know, on on the show, on Deep Space Nine, we got to see, you know, little bits, but for the most part, it was really from the perspective of whatever story was being told, and he was an element of that. He wasn't necessarily, it wasn't something that was told from his perspective point of view specifically. So to see that was really interesting and to get his thoughts and to see his evolution, because along those three tracks, as you follow them going back and forth, you see how he started as, you know, a child or more naive and the education he gets and he learns more and more. And by the time you see him in the post-war era, he has all of this wisdom that he's gathered and all these ways that he's changed. And I, I like that format and kind of showing his progression through his life. I like how the book was laid out with these three different scenarios, these three tracks going on. Uh, if it is on the station, it's an entry that is a different typeface than the entries of what happened in the past on Cardassia prime. And then when you would get to another section, there's nothing that would say entry, and then you knew that that was in the present of him, his return to Cardassia Prime. So it mm -hmm. wasn't confusing to say, okay, which track am I on? Because, first of all, the different fonts between one and the two others, and then the fact that it would say entry at the beginning of two of them and not the other one. So I really liked how that was laid out and how they interwo were interwoven with each other. Uh, so it flowed very well. It could get really confusing when you have three different stories going on at different time periods, but I did not have a single problem with that at all. Well, you know, you guys read the physical book and I read the ebook. There is not a different font between those. So I did oh, get a bit tripped up or confused sometimes to see where I was. Yeah. Uh, that's good to know. Yeah, because I can see that would be a problem. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to imagine that experience of reading that without that visual it, cue. It's, and it's fine most of the time, <laughs> but there's like a small percentage of the time where it's like, okay, where am I now? But then as you see the characters that are involved or how he's talking about it, you can get into it within a page or two, but sometimes it was a bit confusing. Well, then maybe mm -hmm. it's worth the $99 to get the physical book <laughs> just for that reason. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I've told, I, I, I love this novel. It's one of my favorites. I've told people that, you know, if the physical book is the only option, it's worth whatever they can pay for it. So you heard that from me. That's definitely high <laughs> praise. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, the, that 
three tracks and, and like you say, that font system of, of differentiating that was really helpful. And uh, I, I, I suppose I wonder like when he's in his mind and kind of introspective at the start of one of those chapters, it probably would have taken a little longer to figure out exactly where he was mm -hmm. because, you know, there aren't those clues that might have been. I have to imagine because they had the font choice, it wasn't written with that in mind that there would have to be some kind of clue there. So that might have been a little frustrating at times. Yeah, no, I mean, it didn't really take away from it. It was just a bit confusing at, at times. Yeah, because we know when we go into that next entry, we know exactly where we are because that font change. We're just in, you would probably two, three paragraphs in sometimes mm -hmm. and you're still trying to figure it out, right? Yeah, and, and you know, I had expected almost something like um, what what you see sometimes where, you know, at the at the top of the chapter it'll have, you know, the, uh, the year or in the case of something like Q squared where it's track A, track B, track C and you'll be able to see where you're going back and forth. So, I mean, a little bit, but I don't think it took away from it too much. I had no idea that it was supposed to be a different font in the physical book never having read it that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's interesting. I, The thing I'd like to do with this book is, of course, I mentioned I read it, yeah, like whatever, 16 years ago. So I don't remember that much about it. So reading it this time, now I wish I would have gone back to the beginning and read it just the beginning part again, because I knew that he was giving these entries to Julian Bashir. But at first, I'm just like, okay, really? He's just going to give him these entries and divulge all these secrets about himself to Julian. But now that I've read it and how deep it is, it's like, wow, it would really take a lot and of meaning for him to do such a thing for Julian. And I really wanted to go back and read the beginning as to why he felt compelled to do that. I mean, I know he says why, mm -hmm. but I mean, it, there's really got to be a deep reason behind that. Yeah, and he goes into that in the end as well why he's doing it. I don't know. The, the bond between Bashir and Garrick is something that I find really fascinating. And I, I like that, like you said, he goes into that a little bit as to why he was initially kind of drawn to this person so early on. And, and talking about the one thing that popped into my mind was um, how Garrick views Bashir. Like humans are just humans but Bashir because he's genetically engineered and he didn't even know that at the time he just recognized that there's something different about this guy and he's more like a Cardassian <laughs> and I don't know how Bashir would feel about that but we know how what that means to Garrick which is really interesting well and this book really cements that relationship because we learn that he's never really had a relationship like this with anyone else and anytime he's had a relationship where he grows close to someone, it doesn't play out well in the end, but it has mm -hmm. continued to play out well with Julian. I think that's the one person in his life that he can look on and say, that's the only one that I've been able to trust and have true friendship with. And now I'm re re ready to cement that friendship by exposing everything about myself to him. And you know what struck me as well was that in this book, and I don't think We've known that, or it's been said before. I think Garrick told Bashir like everything about what happened in the episode in the Pale Moonlight, which I don't think he has really told anyone else, or Cisco had told anyone else. So that's a big thing to yeah. tell him that kind of deep, dark secret, you know? 
Well, I noticed even like in the within the journal entries, he chronicled himself talking to Bashir about what had happened in that episode Mm -hmm. and like very shortly after it had happened. (laughs) And I mean, the book does an excellent job with with Star Trek, you know, the the C word canon, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and like it does very good. But that part I was like, I I don't think I don't know if that would have been. You know, it, it almost seems like it was common knowledge and Bashir's like, oh, yeah, OK, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, Bashir was involved because Cisco was asking him for this biomimetic gel, which was super suspicious. Right. So there was some mm-hmm. way that Bashir knew something funny was was going on. And I could definitely see him, you know, maybe going to Garrick if he pieced things together that Garrick was was involved and trying to find out. So I, I, I could kind of see that mm-hmm. because he had some piece of it already. Like, why would Cisco ask me for, you know, this stuff that he's not supposed to be giving out? Yeah. I almost feel, though, that like if Bashir learned it was to pay off this guy to... <laughs> create a fake thing and he's already a criminal like he would have even had a bigger problem with that but anyway but yeah no it, it kind of all fits together a bit <laughs> yeah and it's interesting the background information on this book too because you know why would andrew robinson write a garrick book and apparently from what i've read research on this is that he was keeping a diary of his character on the set and was bringing this to conventions and David R. George III, who's a Star Trek author, saw this book and or some of these writings from Andrew and said, you know, this this is really good. You should gather all this up and share it with Pocket and maybe uh, have it printed as a book. Well, he did and the rest is history. So that's how this came about. And I love like we've talked to David R. George about this book in particular in the past and how Andrew Robinson was kind of like, Oh, I I should take it to an author and get them to, to be a co-author on this. And maybe David R. George, you could do that. And apparently he looked at it and said to Andrew Robinson's like, yeah, you don't need me this. There you go. You're, you're good. So high praise from a, from a prolific published author too. Absolutely. And I don't even know if Andrew Robinson has written any other books. Do you not guys know Star, off top of your head? I not Star read. Trek books. That's for sure. Right. Mm. But any other books, do you know? I mean, I not don't. Not that I, I really know don't. of, but I haven't looked into it. I mean, it, like, it almost <laughs> felt like he had all of this stuff that he had gathered together about Garrick, and he constructed this life story, and it's kind of like... I'm done. I did what I wanted to do, you know, but I don't know if yeah. he's done anything, you know, in, um, in any other genre or other sci-fi thing. I don't know. Well, if he hasn't, you would think that this might inspire him to write another book, you know, not necessarily a Star Trek book, but yeah, just any book. Anyway, we'll have to find that out. If anybody knows, they can send us an email <laughs> or a tweet or whatever. Definitely. <laughs> all the myriad of ways to get in contact with us for sure. Well, um, jumping to the beginning of this book, you know, we talk about how Garrick, uh, doesn't have any of these close friendship relations like he does with Bashir and, and, you know, most of the ones he has had have gone wrong. And the period in your life where you make great friendships and stuff is, you know, as a young person going to school and we see Garrick's experience with that when he, as, as a young man, goes to the Bamaran or Bamaran Institute for State Intelligence. And so, you know, while human 
young people are are forming relationships and and learning what it means to be a human being he's being schooled in fighting in the pit and uh doing like treks across the wilderness to sneak past sentries and that kind of thing and uh so we see this part in his life he ranks 10 in his group and through his time there he proves that he deserves to be ranked higher and we see this very interesting relationship with Inabrin Tain, who of course will have a huge part in Garrick's life. And, uh, you know, contrasting that a bit with the relationship that he has with his father, uh, Tolan, and we'll talk a little bit about that later. Um, and then how that leads to his career in the Obsidian Order. What did you guys think of his early years at, at this institute? So my favorite parts of the book are the early years and the later years. The middle years, mm-hmm. I mean, they're interesting, but they're not my favorite. So uh, actually, the later years are probably my most favorite, followed by closely behind by the early years of him growing up. Um, and we don't really see him necessarily as a little kid. It's just, you know, in his when he's a little older and in this institute, um, I found it to be really interesting just to see the dynamics of how the school works and how they train them and how they have these groups with the order of one through 10 and, and how they play off of each other and the tests and things that they have to deal with. That definitely shapes what we know of Garrick and Cardassia as a whole and what they're really all about. Yeah, and I mean, you were saying before, Dan, that for humans as a child, they're learning what it means to be a human being. I feel like in this education, Garrick is learning what it means to be a Cardassian being, because for for them, service to the state is the highest thing that you can do, and it's kind of an honor to to go to an institute like this and to prepare for that. And everything that they're doing is really preparing them for... A couple of different things, I guess, either being part of the military or being part of the Obsidian Order or serving the state in in some other way. So it's kind of like this, they're getting here a trial run into the, what I guess Cardassians would see as like the combat of life, right? Against your enemies, whoever they are, whether they're uh, right in front of you or they're subtle or whatever the case is, it's preparing you for competition and combat. And that's kind of I think what his education means to him and how it shapes him and how it, we see it affect him. I mean, I think that kind of training really um, kind of does a disservice and scars him at a certain point and he has to recover from that. So it's it's really fascinating to, to see this and what it means to grow up as a Cardassian because I, I think this is the first time that we've seen something like that, what it means to really like be a Cardassian and be raised in that kind of society. And we know Cardassia is that kind of totalitarian, always put the state first, always for the good of the nation. And we see that played out in this Institute. I mean, it's, it's got a very 1984 vibe to it, you know, like when he, for example, he has to go get cleaning supplies and he can pick whoever he wants. And he's like, well, it's just getting cleaning supplies. I can do that myself. And I don't know if I want to ask anybody. I'll, I'll just go myself. And he goes to do it. And of course, he's interrogated basically he's on the spot. Too, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's he's beaten and interrogated. And like, why didn't you take anybody else? Why did you come alone? You know, and it's just 
the 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 quote education that he's given is terrifying and uh it was honestly like i think when i read this back like in the in 2000 i would have uh just graduated high school and so you know, I think I remember kind of putting myself in his place and thinking like, oh, that's that's kind of messed up. But now looking back on it, having been a high school teacher and seeing it from that side, I'm just like, this is so damaging. Like, oh, my God. Yeah. And I mean, the, the whole point of that, that scene or that lesson is that you always have to remember to work with the group and with whoever you can in order to accomplish your goals. So, they, I mean, literally like beat that into his head and just like from from a pretty young age, he's learning that you have to serve the state. What you want doesn't matter. It's what the people who are your superiors and your teachers want and what the state and the leadership wants that's important. I mean, there's nothing about his own real, um, you know, wants or, or goals that's that's important. And that's it's kind of frightening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so... During his time at the school here, we also get an introduction to what turns out to be one of his most important relationships in his life. And this is the young Cardassian woman who's who's a year ahead of him. Uh, I believe one year ahead of him. Palandine, I think, is how I pronounced her name while reading it. What did you guys think of this character and kind of her role in Garrick's early life here? And, And specifically just in the early years, because we'll definitely get to... Uh, there's there's more of her to come for sure. Well, because the fact that we know that he hasn't uh, had that many relationships, to see him bonding with a woman that he then has feelings for is quite interesting. And I did, I was very suspicious of her from the very beginning, if she was up to something, because it seems that all Cardassians are always up to something. I think everybody <laughs> at that institute has a hidden agenda, you know, and is Absolutely. trying to crawl all over everybody else to get to the top. <laughs> even Garrick himself. I mean, they all do. I mean, it's amazing yeah. that they even get along, <laughs> any of them, you know. But she, she mm-hmm. just kind of, I don't know why she singled him out. I mean, I, I, I do kind of find out later why he does, she does, but it just seems like she just randomly picked him of somebody that she wanted to bond with. Well, not bond like yeah. in a physical way. <laughs> no, but I mean, it, it seems like there, there's like two levels that are, that are going on with her. I think at one level, I take it at face value that she really is kind of looking for someone to be friendly with or is attracted to him. But at another level, she can use that for her own advancement or to keep an eye on what's going on with him. Because I think she catches, I mean, he catches her eye as someone who's supposed to be lower rated, right, as 10th in his group, but that there's something there. There's some kind of like brilliance that's there that she needs to keep track of, right? And in some way kind of, you know, control or find a way to her advantage. So I think she sees something in him that others might not. It's kind of interesting that we bring up what all of their individual agendas are. Like right off the bat, for example, you know, they're they're at the Institute for State Intelligence. And basically just by putting him off guard, she is able to get so much information out of him in just that initial encounter. I was just like, Garrick, what are you doing? But uh, but at the same time, like it really um, illustrated to me that, you know, one of the lessons they're trying to literally beat into these people is that you know it's it's all about the group 
you're for the group. Everything you do is a reflection on the group. And yet everybody has such individual agendas and they're all just crawling all over one another to, to get ahead. And I just, that those two forces at work are just, oh, it, it would, it would drive me insane to be there. Yeah. Could it be, I don't, I hadn't had this thought before, but could it be in, in some way that, um, that this was some kind of test for Garrick? Um, and that, and that somehow, I don't know if this makes any sense, but, but that somehow, um, someone had convinced her to take an interest in him because it seems like Tane in, in a lot of ways is looking to test him and see if he's really worthy. And in the end, you know, he kind of fails the test, but I don't know because with the Cardassians, you can't tell like how elaborate their plan really is, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think she had a plan and she was using him as, as we know that happens later in the story. But I, I had those thoughts initially that, okay, she's been set up to go seek him out. She's working for Tane or something like that or whatever, but that doesn't, prove out to be true but i think justin you're right initially about how she just saw something in him and based on what you were saying and then dan was saying after that it dawned on me that when she seeks him out and she sees something about him and she wants to start this friendship with him it's almost a parallel and a mirror of what we see of garrick with bashir it's almost like Garrick has become the Palpatine. See, I almost want to say, (laughs) (laughs) oh wait, Star Wars. That's a whole Uh. other thing. (laughs) Paladine uh, and mirroring that, what she did with him, he's now doing with Bashir. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's definite parallels all over this story with, with what we know of his character later on. And I, going back to something that was said earlier, I actually initially, it had been long enough since I read this book, of course, that I couldn't remember exactly what role everybody plays and what ends up happening. So I was initially thinking like, okay, so she's in the year ahead of him. It's a, it's a Institute for state intelligence. Her assignment is to learn everything about this guy. And at the same time, if he gives up everything, he's failing some hidden assignment as well. And so I, I was, thinking along those lines, like this is all just all perfectly tightly controlled by the, by the overseers kind of thing. And they're being observed at all times and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I I hadn't even thought as far as, as Tane being involved or anything like that. I just thought it was a school thing, but, uh, yeah, we, we learned that there are plans within plans and, and there are agendas that aren't immediately revealed for sure. And even, you know, when, when you're just kind of as part of this, this institute, I guess maybe as, as a teenager, you have to like keep on your guard the whole time. And if there are lapses, it can lead to some serious problems for you or, yeah, I mean, they, I, I think at one point they say before he gets sent to the institute, like your childhood's over now, you know? it's you're Great. you're here to serve the state now and you know be vigilant <laughs> so like from a yeah. really young age because you're not even supposed to refer uh, to your name i right. mean you're giving an, a designation and you can't even call yourself garrick or whatever your real name is yeah because mm-hmm. as far as the state yeah. is concerned you are a ranking within a group that's it yeah you've lost your individuality yeah even though everybody has their own individual agenda. 
but we're all supposed to work as a group. Oh, it's so confusing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I tell you, I would just absolutely lose lose my mind at this point. Yeah, I mean, but we're see, we're seeing that also from a human perspective. But like, if you had grown mm-hmm. up in that kind of society where that was a normal thing for generations and generations, you would just see it as this is just what we do, you know. But it's hard to put ourselves in that position. It is, absolutely. And uh, I, I mean, I think that's a theme that's going to come and play a big role in the end of the book when we see that, you know, generation after generation, this is the same thing. And where where has it gotten mm-hmm. us? You know, us being Cardassia. I don't know. <laughs> I, I guess the book, because it's written in the first person, I'm really getting into Team it. Team Garrick. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So while at the Institute, of course, Garrick does distinguish himself and uh, he kind of learns this skill to um, be hidden from people around him and kind of shrink away and be and minimize himself so that he's unnoticed. And one of their assignments, as I kind of mentioned earlier, was to make their way through this wilderness. Uh, They play the role of the hunter and the hunted at various times. And Garrick gets really good at being the hunted in that he makes it all the way back to home base, I guess, without being discovered. And he becomes really well known for this, which gives him uh, kind of some notoriety and a place of leadership in what's called the competition. And it's just the competition with a capital C. And this has... I think it's it's this one event that has ripples that go out across Garrick's life based on what happens in this event. Uh, what did you guys think of of this this singular event in Garrick's life and the role that he played there? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, no, I, I I actually had a thought about something you're talking about before, like his technique to to kind of disappear and become. Mm kind of invisible. I thought that was just fascinating to read about and the thought that you could kind of train yourself to blend into the background. I mean, there's there's one point at which basically he's, you know, sitting on his bed studying, his roommates come in, they don't realize that he's there. They start talking about, you know, getting into his personal stuff and then he scares the heck out of them because they didn't realize he was there. I'm just thinking, wow, that's that's a really amazing skill to have and I love that he learns that skill from an animal that he sees out in the wilderness, what they call it a Regnar, is that how you pronounce it? Regnar, yeah. yeah. And so, and one of the, as I think about it, one of the themes um, that I see is kind of, there's this connection that Garrick has to contemporary society, but there's also the connection to the natural world or what came before with this animal, with the gardening that he likes to do. So I see it sometimes as there's, there's kind of, he's wanting to get back to something like simpler or of a previous time. And, and, and I like that a lot. Um, but like Mm -hmm. for the competition, I mean, it's kind of a crazy thing because there, there are these two sides and who knows who works for what side and they have to get past this goal. And, you know, and there's some real consequences. People get like really seriously injured. And I mean, they're still, I guess, teenagers at this point. And, I don't know, just this whole competition is feels kind of brutal. It does. It reminds mm. me of the Hunger Games in a sense. I mean, not that they're all killing each other, but uh, just that they're out there and they're hiding and and uh, 
but yeah, the the thing with the animals that was really strange that, you know, he can learn from this animal just to hide himself. And he even takes the animal with him and locks it away. And he's like kept it almost like a pet for a long period of time. And I guess he had to feed it. I mean, I don't know. Did he had to clean the cage every time it like, you know, I mean, I don't know how he was really taking care I, of this I, thing. I guess so. But, but you know, like I almost like as I was reading it and the way that it's being described, it almost seemed like it was a spiritual experience for Garrick, getting to know this right. animal and having it put him into touch and harmony with things around him. And that's another thread that runs through is is kind of like a certain spiritual journey for Garrick, which I think is totally unexpected because, you know, from what we see in Deep Space Nine, spirituality is just not important for Cardassian society or, or for Garrick. But it's an interesting thread that comes through that I think the first time I read it, I was surprised that it was it was there but there's like this other side that's like spiritual or more kind of in contact with nature or a simpler time that's that's very interesting to me i could be totally off about this i could be totally wrong but to me that felt like you know a lot of what we see in this book comes from the writers of deep space nine and their crafting of garrick and what they put into him and of course, the voice that Andrew Robinson brought to the screen. And wow, does that ever come across on the pages here? Like it, it's just three words in, I'm hearing Andrew Robinson's voice in my head, which is incredible. But the spiritual, the spirituality side of it and some of that stuff, I'm thinking it feels to me like that's a lot of Andrew Robinson bringing more of himself into the character than what was there uh, on in the scripts on Deep Space Nine. And and like I say, I could be totally wrong about that, but it feels like a lot of this is a very personal philosophy for, for Andrew Robinson. That's that's a possibility. I mean, but I, I also see it as what what we actually saw on the on the episodes on on Deep Space Nine were a certain slice of his life and his outlook for those seven years. And that there were other things that were going on that, that he was affected by before and, and afterwards. But that's interesting. I hadn't thought about it as Andrew Robinson's kind of personal stamp or personal philosophy. or Yeah, and, and like I say, that could be totally off. I, I have no idea what... Uh, I, I met the man for about 10 minutes at the Vegas Trek convention. Did once, you have a feeling of peace at the time? <laughs> I had the feeling that I was sitting across from a very intelligent man. Okay. <laughs> like, I just like, I, I feel like this guy could talk about anything and sound learned. Uh, he was, mm. he, he's a really cool guy. And he's anyway. like, and I learned everything that I know from an animal that I captured and found. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and, and I, it does come across to me. my From what we talked about earlier, the background of the writing of this book, that you know, as he's on the set and he's reading these scripts, he's just putting backstories to everything he's given. And I'm, I just wonder if there was conversations with the writers about his character. And some of these ideas came from them that we didn't see on the page of the script that he incorporated into these stories or just, just that discussion with them. These things start to come out and um, it, he really obviously loved and own this character if he's going to put the time into writing these backstories uh it, it's mm -hmm. just it's brilliant that he took that time and effort to do it yeah definitely and you know he did write other books oh, he i did? looked it okay. up 
Oh, I'm on Goodreads here. He wrote Lexa and the Smugglers of Cyclo and Lexa and the Gordian Maze of Terra. But he also contributed to Prophecy and Change, oh, that's right. the Deep Space Nine. Oh, which I never I forgot read. about. I that. haven't that's read that, right. but I do remember reading that he did a short story as a, as a kind of a follow up to this, right? I think so. I think yeah. so, yeah. We'll have, I, I've. Let's go read I've it. I've got that book in a box. Yeah, it's a short story. We'll we'll, we'll be that. back in twenty minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, in this book, also kind of jumping ahead a bit, uh, we follow Garrick's career in the Obsidian Order, and you know, I I don't want to dwell too much on this because you know this this like we could talk about this book I think for hours definitely and as much fun as that would be and as great as that would be, we should probably uh, not do that. But we learn to me, what's really interesting is the ultimate reason why he was exiled to Terok Nor and sent away. What did you guys think of that whole aspect of the story? And was it what you expected? I guess. Because I think we get several stories during the series. And of course, they all come from Garrick, so they're all suspect. I think he tells Odo at one time that he, it was tax fraud or <laughs> something like that. Or being laid on his taxes or something like that. And uh, yeah. uh, I think he he might have, I might be making this up. This might have been something in my head, but he, you know, messed up somebody's suit he was making or something like that. You know, like he just always kind of brushed it off and gave a glib answer. And here, supposedly, we get the real reason. Well, see, that's it. I, I didn't really have an expectation because I couldn't ever believe, but I don't know what the real reason is that he <laughs> ended up there. So I didn't really go in and read this and think if this was meeting an expectation that I had because I, I don't think I went in with that. Uh, if anything, there's a lot about this book that I don't even remember from the first time reading it, which I think I'll talk about when we close the show, just my different experiences reading this book. But um, I, the reason he's on the station makes sense to me. It, it wasn't far-fetched. It, didn't, it wasn't a stretch or anything to, to the imagination where I'm like, oh, that's lame, that's stupid. It wasn't anything like that. Yeah, and so um, I I feel like sometimes there's these three different tracks, and there's so much in the book. I have to kind of keep straight what happened. So, um, so the the reason was uh, wasn't it twofold? It it had to do with you know this assignment that that he has that relates to Ducat's father, right? Um, but mm-hmm. then it's kind of like well. Um, we could maybe get you out of that, but you also have, you know, this this relationship with this guy's wife, so uh, we got to get rid of you. I mean, it's kind of twofold, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, which, are we in spoilers now? <laughs> I, I, I think we're firmly in spoilers yeah. now, so. Because he yeah. also, <laughs> this you know, the woman that he loves, he kills her husband. And isn't that kind of the event that leads him towards Tarak Nor? Isn't that- it, it's yeah yeah it's so um he's <laughs> he's kind of assigned by Tane to kill her husband but at the same time also he can never see her again right and 
he breaks that rule because he's in love and you know he's you know letting that rule his uh sentimentality his that's his weakness exactly and i think tane says as much both in this book and uh in an episode of deep space nine as well i mean you know i i, I that's one thing i love how closely this hues to what we know about garrick in deep space nine like there's a lot of times in novels, and, and I hate to say this as someone who loves the novel, sometimes you have to squint to make it fit. Like the author takes some liberty and you're like, eh, okay, I'll just pretend that he actually said this and that's not really. This novel, there's just so much in here and it all fits perfectly with Garrick's story. Like I just, yeah. it's, you could, it's a companion piece to the series. Well, and I think it, anyway, it I'm benefits <laughs> a lot from basically, you know, Andrew Robinson writing some of it, like while the show was in production, you know? It's mm -hmm. fresh in his mind, I think, during a lot of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I should also note probably some very good editing as well, because I loved the acknowledgments when he talked about Margaret Clark uh, and the fact that she let him know that Hasperat is a Bajoran dish and not a Cardassian <laughs> dish, saving him from Trek infamy, which I thought was excellent. Yeah. <laughs> So utilizing your resources very well, just like Garrick would, which is good. But yeah, Palandine. So this is, of course, where she is in the story again. And, and Garrick has been carrying on in an illicit affair with her and he's banned from seeing her again. Uh, but he keeps seeing her and is ultimately and, and it's tied in with Prokal Dukat, Gul Dukat's father and that whole affair. Uh, different kind of affair. I shouldn't have used the word <laughs> incident. Affair. That whole incident. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so he's ultimately exiled to Tarok Nor to mend the uniforms of the Cardassian troops garrisoned there. Um, so that's kind of the uh, immediate origin story for Garrick, which we get. Which I often wondered how he became a tailor. And I guess this answers that question. He was just, assigned that duty to mend the uniforms and he had to figure out how to do it. He was not like trained but, as a tailor growing but up. But he did say before mm -hmm. at some point that he had an interest in, in clothing and one of his favorite things was to pick out his wardrobe for his mission. So there was, you know, a little, he put in a little bit there from beforehand, but when he actually gets there, he doesn't really know how to do it. <laughs> Right, that he has to mm -hmm. fix a computer so he can start learning some things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which I was a little disappointed. Yeah, I, I thought he was going to use that computer for something more than just that. Like to, to kill Gold Ducat or something? <laughs> Try yeah, to. or attempt to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I kind of had the same thought. I thought he was up to something a little different there. But uh, I don't think it was trying to kill Gold Ducat because anything Garrick puts his mind to, he just ultimately does so <laughs> but uh but yeah no it's really interesting i i liked that aspect too i wasn't expecting that that you know tailoring wasn't something that he had a passion for to begin with it was just it was like you said he had some tangential interest but he was thrust into that role and and there was no garden on Terok nor so what could he do yeah <laughs> <laughs> and because he's garrick he's just awesome at whatever he does and and works really hard to be the best and charge and the highest price <laughs> i like that yeah 
<laughs> well, and I like <laughs> the how the whole deal with Quark was great. Yes, Quark is just like working deals with him as I'll send you business and then I'll keep a percentage of what business you make from the referrals I sent you and such. And I'll never watch Deep Space Nine the same way again because anytime I see Quark, I'm going to look at his clothes and think, he got Garrick to make that make that for him. You know, it's mm-hmm. like just because and I, I now know the story behind. I mean, I don't know if he if Garrick made all of Cork's clothing that we see on Deep Space Nine, but there's definitely indication here that uh, he was making sure that he and his brother looked very dapper while working. <laughs> well, and I loved that he made Rom's uniform mm-hmm. as well. And then Quark charged Rom. <laughs> yes. But it's okay because Rom's like, oh, it was, it was a fair price. Yeah. It's okay. And Garrick's like, oh. And I like okay. that they that uh, <laughs> uh, that Garrick is giving this commission to Quark for any business that comes by. And he makes a point of saying, Quark always kept his word. And I'm thinking, is Garrick the only person to ever say Quark always kept his word? <laughs> <laughs> Hmm, that's a good call. <laughs> yeah, he definitely seems to have respect for Quark. Yeah. Probably more mm-hmm. so than anybody else in the station. Because Quark's a survivor too, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, the parallels between... And, and I hadn't thought of that uh, and, you know, until reading this book, that you know the those two characters are two people that would have been on the station before most of the cast gets there kind of together, which is really interesting. Them and Odo. Yeah, well, I mean, and and of course, Quark and Garrick, we see them commiserate sometimes about the Federation and how it's insidious and all that stuff. So I think they have kind of a similar perspective in some ways. Mm -hmm. Speaking of insidious, uh, to me, (laughs) when the Cardassians withdrew and Garrick didn't even know, like it happened in the night and no one told him, and that's how he like is still there, you know. That was ah oh, man, that was a teeth gnashing moment. I would have been so angry. <laughs> it was kind of the ultimate. I mean, like in a way, after he's disgraced, they're doing two things as an ultimate insult. I mean, first, we're not going to to execute you. We're going to exile you to this station where you're just going to be the. I think he says he feels like he's the only Cardassian slave on Terok Nor, so it's like he's the lowest of the low in some ways. Mm-hmm. And then after that, they're not even going to take him with them. He just has to fend for himself, you know, amongst all the Bajorans. So, wow. Yeah, he's... And, and that's what makes it really interesting because at that point, he's at the lowest point. They're not even going to take him with them back to Cardassia Prime. But then there is kind of, you know, after the end of the war and the post-war period, um, he has a very different role and he kind of redeems himself. And I like that a lot, at least in the eyes of other Cardassians. It's, it's, it's really something like the whole arc of the story feels really epic, like all the ups and downs in his life. Yeah, it's, it's kind of one of those things. And, you know, this book contributes to it. And I think Una McCormick's novels really contribute to it. Like there are not a lot of Star Trek alien races that are as fleshed out as the Cardassians are. Uh, I mean, you know, there's the Vulcans and the Klingons and the Romulans a little bit, but man, do these novels ever get into Cardassia and Cardassian society. And now, especially with the post series novels and, you know, after the Dominion war and the reconstruction period on Cardassia, I think just, we learn so much about these people and what they've been through and what 
the future hopefully holds for them and that kind of thing. Um, so for in, in this novel, we get, you know, a vivid description of the aftermath of the destruction on the homeworld. And, you know, a lot of it is presented initially as uh, statistics and dry facts like, oh, we're there's over a billion dead on Cardassia. And that's just a number. But we get the experience of Garrick, you know, in the trenches with the people of his sector, kind of a Cardassian neighborhood, uh, cleaning up and, you know, doing rescue operations, which eventually turn into burial details once, you know, the time has passed for there to be any survivors left. And it's, yeah, this, this whole period is really fascinating to me. And, you know, we talk, I, I see here, um, Justin, you put in the notes, the burgeoning democratic movement on Cardassia and how those seeds are kind of sprouting and how Garrick's helping them along kind of gardening in a different way now, creating a new society. Yeah. <laughs> I hadn't thought of it that way, but, but <laughs> definitely, I mean, I, I think, you know, I, I agree with you, Bruce, that this was my favorite part of the book was the post-war part. I love the other parts too, but there's something even from the beginning of the book where it starts in the post-war period and he's talking about all of this dust, not only from the buildings, but I think also from, you know, the people that have died. So it's like you're kind of breathing in all of this death and destruction. So it's like all around him. And then during the course of the book, as we see that along this track, um, there's a couple of really interesting things that happen. He feels like he has to do something. So he builds these memorials that have like debris that are in different piles and people see it as memorials to the dead and they're doing death chants. And so he's starting to kind of get this, this respect or this way of kind of moving people through, through this time. Um, and then as kind of you're, you're going through that and seeing the people he's interacting with, I think one of my favorites that I'm glad that they included is Dr. Uh, Parmak, who was mentioned in basically one line in Deep Space Nine where Garrick talked about uh, someone giving up secrets just by staring at them for four hours or something like that, right? Um, but he's mm -hmm. he's this friend to Garrick now. I guess he's forgiven that. And he's kind of like a Cardassian Bashir um, because he's confiding in him certain things and he's talking with him about where they go from here. And like as you go through it, you see more and more like the two different factions, the people of the of the old order, um, and then the people like Parmuk and Alangamore who want like a new, more democratic order. So I found that part just, just totally fascinating thinking about, you know, what that post-war period's like and that there's so much destruction that people eventually decide we've got to do something different. We can't do the same thing because it almost destroyed us. Yeah, and that's the thing I really love about this part too is when we see the old guard trying to get back in power again to make things right. And Garrick realizes you're the, I mean, he doesn't say it to them, but it's like, you know, you're the ones who put us here. If you get back in power and do your thing all over again, it's just going to bring more destruction again later. We have to be different. We have to do something different to bring Cardassia prime into its prime and leave it there. And the fact that, there's like almost like two schools of philosophy now, the old and new, and they have to come together. And we start to see that the old power 
starts to realize they can't have the full power they had before and that those who didn't have power before are starting to have power and influence as a community to come together and make change happen. And the two start to blend and become one. And no one has mm -hmm. the ultimate power anymore. And now they can rebuild and be one united society. And I loved that part of the book. Yeah, that was, uh, I mean, you know, to, to borrow a phrase, it gave me all the feels. <laughs> you know, I, I really like that kind of, that epic sweep of the story and and that idea that this is, you know, a brave new world for Cardassia and stuff. And I, I love that the, the kind of cadre of the old guard, you know, the, it, it's a little bit small universe syndrome, I guess, but I love that all of them are people that we've seen before. And then even the one person they didn't identify is, you know, someone very important from Garrick's past who actually plays, we haven't talked about him much, but he plays a pretty, pretty big role throughout the book. But, uh, you know, the, um, and, and I love just the little hints that like for the readers out there who don't remember who these people are, it's like Gull Madrid who had a pretty good career up until that fiasco where he tortured Picard. Uh, I, Boy, I got kind of a, like a shiver a when, when I saw Madrid was in the novel. I'm like, Oh, that guy. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like that that episode is so dark, but these were it's crazy to think these were Garrick's contemporaries. These were his not necessarily colleagues, but you know, people that were a part of the society that he was a part of in his prime and stuff, which is yeah, kind of terrifying to think about. Uh the one character they don't drop a hint about is Gulloset because they can't really say, "Oh, and she chased some DNA fragments around for a bit with the Klingons and, and the Federation. Uh, anyway, but... I'd forgotten that's where we saw her. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I, I feel like they really wanted to drop a hint about that, but couldn't figure out a way to do it well. But <laughs> yeah. Well, I also thought, you know, the, these people of the old guard, I'm thinking like a billion people died and these guys are still around, but Oh, I know. I had the same. But you know, thought. It, it could be that you know these were the the powerful people that you know had their avenues or ways of getting away, you know, or mm -hmm. staying away from the destruction. But yeah, that that part was very interesting. I mean, I think also th this other side of it, this kind of democratic movement. There's this, you know, from from the other side, from the old guard, they're saying this is Federation corruption. The Federation's coming in. They're trying to help us rebuild, and now they want to you know, transform our political system? How can they do that? But I think what um, Andrew Robinson gets across really effectively is that people feel like the old order has so thoroughly destroyed their life and their civilization that they have to at least try. They can't just call it a name like this is something from the Federation and not try it. They have to try it. And if it doesn't work, they can, you know, try something else. But I like that it gets to that spirit. And I think that can happen sometimes when a society has faced a lot of destruction or things have been turned upside down. People can be more willing to try something uh, that they wouldn't before and, and just see what happens, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, yeah, and thinking back on this book, just as we're talking, I'm realizing how little there is about Bajor and the relationship with Bajor in here. I mean, this mm -hmm. really is focused on Cardassia it is. itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's an interesting point. Um, with regards to Cardassia, I, I kind of like that thought. It's almost as though like, okay, billions have died. 
our society's completely destroyed. The military's led us down this path. Fine, fine. We'll try something other than totalitarianism. Jeez. No, but you know, a, a lot of ways, a lot of these people are kind of dragged kicking and screaming into this, you know, trying a, a new way. But like you said, the popular feeling, the groundswell of the people seems to be to push in this yeah, direction. The people, the people that are that, left, you know, I mean, they talk about a billion mm-hmm. dead, but I don't know if we know how many people were originally, you know, on the planet or how many of that leaves. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was curious myself, like what exactly are the numbers? But I, I love that even a few members of this old guard are kind of like, we see it just towards the end that a couple of them are like, no, okay. Yeah, this this Alon Gamor and this Dr. Parmac guy, yeah, maybe they have some good ideas. Oh. I'll I'll listen, you know. We get Gullivec and Gulliset kind of Oh, okay, yeah. So I, I, I just love that little hint that the wheel is turning and that, you know, even people so enmeshed in the old way of doing things, even they are are kind of coming around to this. And it's it's it ends on a hopeful note, which is really good. Definitely. So the other fundamental thing about Cardassian society, and we touched a little bit on Garrick's spirituality, his burgeoning spirituality and and that sort of thing, is the religion of the ancient Cardassian civilization, the Hibitians, uh, the first people to arise on Cardassia Prime. And they had this rich spiritual life centered around Aurelius, who is kind of their their main um, religious figure. And that religion had been outlawed, but there are secret meetings happening throughout uh, Cardassian history. And, and in this book, we see Garrick kind of stumble upon one early on, and he goes back later with Palandine. And at various times in this book, he has very uh, mixed feelings about this. We see from a few perspectives in his life how he feels about this. But, you know, by the end of the novel, this religion is playing a big role in Garrick's life and possibly in the future of Cardassia. And I mean, we see more of that in other novels that that come after this, but we definitely see the beginnings of it here. What do you guys think of of this kind of uh, ancient Cardassian religion and the role it plays in Garrick's life in particular? I found it a very interesting part of of the novel because I, I could be wrong but i think these mentions that we get of of this cardassian religion i don't know if there was a novel before that had talked about that or any episode that had talked about that so i think it's something that's that's introduced here almost as kind of a mm. a counterpart to the the bajoran religion a little bit um but you know it it seems like you know, one of the important things about it is that Cardassian society has been about service to the state, right? And for this religion, this Aurelian way, um, it's kind of like how you as an individual can connect, you know, with the universe around you and to try to, you know, understand what's going on, not in the, the lens of how you can serve, you know, the state of your or your planet, but how you can, you know, find peace and understanding in your own life and kind of, you know, bring that across to to others. So I thought it was an interesting contrast. And at first, I think the first time I read this, I was kind of surprised that, uh, that eventually Garrick is 
kind of, you know, into it and, and it's, it's doing something good for him. But I think that, you know, in the same way that they, they're kind of turning the page onto a different type of Cardassian society, he's kind of turning the page in his own life because the things that he could count on before also helped to destroy his society. So he's trying something different. I also like that the religion uses masks mm. uh, with the leaders and that the reflection on Cardassia itself is that Garrick and others are naturally wearing masks, not necessarily the physical mask, but they're always putting a facade of something different than who maybe they really are. And so I just mm. thought it was interesting to see that an old society on Cardassia actually used masks and that the current society dons a mask naturally. An invisible mask. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Again, something that Andrew Robinson seems very good at is, is drawing parallels between different parts of his stories. And yeah, that's an interesting point. I hadn't thought of that. Well, kind of the, the final point I wanted to talk about is Garrick is a well-known liar and is called out by many people throughout his life in episodes of Deep Space Nine and is something that he readily admits to and wears very proudly. So this book that we've read, is it all true? Or are they lies? Or as Garrick would say, you know, it's all true, especially the lies. You know, what? how do we feel about his reliability here? Is this the ultimate true statement of what happened or is there even such a thing what's going on here <laughs> well I, I mean i i think sometimes it can be difficult to say you know what is you know the the hundred percent accurate truth especially when you're writing about something that happened a long time ago in your life but the the way that i see it is yes i think that it is something that's that's reliable i think first of all because this is something that he's writing to to Bashir at a point in his life where he's really been able to examine his training, which was all about, I think the way that, that he puts it at one point is, you know, finding the, the truth in the situation, even if it's a lie, right? Or what, what people are expecting you to say or what you're expected to do is your own truth. But I think, again, like at this point, because he's really kind of writing these reminiscences in the post-war period, I think he's kind of turned the page on that part of, of his life. I mean, and also the way that things are depicted here, it feel it doesn't feel self-serving for the most part. It feels like he's showing, you know, all of the the warts, all of the, you know, humiliations he's had in, in his life. Um, and it, it feels like it is the, the real story. Now, I think in some ways, for the post-war stuff, that might be a bit self-serving in order to make him look good at the end. <laughs> but I think the things previous <laughs> to that, I think, are him kind of bearing his soul to, to Bashir. Wow, that's deep. <laughs> uh, I think uh, that's, that was really good. I think that... I almost, these entries, the original entries of his past, I don't think were written for Bashir. And maybe that was his intent originally and maybe self-consciously or something. I don't know. But I think he was keeping a journal for himself that he decides later to share with Bashir. But 
I, I almost picture there'd be a conversation if, if Bashir were to ask Garrick, are, are these entries that you wrote, are they true? And I feel like Garrick would say, well, doctor, what, what is truth, but what is in the eye of the beholder? And, and what is written here is true from my point of view. And so it's almost like it could be true and maybe again from what he wrote I so do I do believe it is true from his point of view for the most part but at the same time you know the novels aren't canon so none of it's true ooh oh, well it's it's interesting fired. you say that Bruce because <laughs> I always took it both times that I've read this that those entries about his earlier life um were Okay, so there's there's three different parts. There's a post-war part, there's the earlier part, and the parts on the last year of the Dominion War. I took it as he's writing a lot of the earlier stuff in the post-war period because he's gotten that perspective on it. Because I don't think while he was studying at this institute, he would have been able to describe it in this way or have you know all of these uh, insights into it. But I do right. think the parts that take place in the last year of the Dominion War, he's doing that as it actually is happening because yes. he's mature enough to give that that perspective. No, I agree with that. Yeah, I do think it was all written in the post-war period of time, but I don't think it was originally intended, at least the past incidents, the, the past memories that he's writing down were written for Bashir. Because mm, I, I always took it intent. that it was his intent to do See, that. See, I took that intent. The first time I read this, I remember that was my thinking. But the mm. second time I read this, I didn't feel that way. Interesting. Hmm. Interesting. Because I thought, this is a lot to write just for one person. I mean, this is like 393 pages. I can't imagine writing anything for one person that's 393 pages. I felt like he, <laughs> he was doing his memoirs and then decided he was going to share them with Bashir. And then you don't feel like this book was written for you, Bruce. Oh no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I actually, it's funny you put that the way you did, Bruce, because I, that's exactly what I was thinking. Was I don't know if this is true or not, but I really want to hear what Garrick would say if you asked him if it was true, <laughs> because that answer would be great. And yeah, no, that was, um, yeah, I, I feel kind of like you that. You know, there are truths here and it's from Garrick's perspective and it it's as true as he can possibly make it possibly. But, you know, because we don't, the people that he's up against in the competition, you know, for example, he assigns um, uh, motives to their behavior that maybe, you know, if we got the story from their perspective, it would be a lot different or something like that. You know, I, that, that sort of question always is of interest to me because, you know, there's truth and then there's your truth kind of thing. And, and I think Garrick would be the first one to say that, like, you know, what's truth exactly. So I don't know where that leaves us. I kind of talked to myself in a circle there. <laughs> I, and I, I like I'm to think if you were so. to ask Garrick if, <laughs> if, uh, what's in this book is true, that he'd just say yes. And then whoever would be asking the question would be like, really? I expected you to say something different. <laughs> like something really elaborate. <laughs> He's like, no, at this point in my life, I'm just keeping it simple. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm just a simple nice. tailor. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Justin, if, uh, I mean, I, I, I feel like I probably know where people are falling down on, on this book, but uh, if you were to give this a rating and kind of your final thoughts, what would you say about A Stitch in Time? 
Yeah, so for my final thoughts, I was really looking forward to talking about this and rereading it because out of all the Star Trek novels that I've read, it's about 140 now, this is in my top three of all of those. It's way, way high up there along with Spock's World and the Destiny Trilogy. Those three are are my favorites. And rereading it, it confirmed it because... There is so much that's, you know, fascinating and complex. I mean, it is really true. We could talk about this for many more hours because I feel like Andrew Robinson has packed so much into the book and he writes so brilliantly. Like sometimes I'd read something, a couple of paragraphs, and I'd be like, wow, that's amazing. I need to reread that, you know, because there are things that are that are so quotable and such amazing, like, insights. And there's a lot of complexity. I feel like even after reading it two times, there's probably, you know, a lot of stuff, maybe even, you know, half of what's intended to be there I'm not actually catching because I think there's a lot of different levels. So I think it's a, it's a brilliant book. I, I love it a lot. It was, it was really fun rereading it. Garrick's one of my favorite characters. It's just, you know, a pleasure all the way around. Um, so if I were to rate it, and again, I would only do this for a couple of books, I would rate it 11 out of 10 stimulating Garrick conversations. Mm. Wow. 10 is not high enough. I mean, really, that's how highly I think of this book. That's a terrific (laughs) rating. That's excellent. (laughs) Especially since they're stimulating Garrick conversations. Yeah, you got to get that extra one in there. (laughs) Bruce, what are your thoughts? Okay, so the first time I read this book, yes, Dan, like we talked about, there was the hype. I heard how great it was. I mean, this is a long time ago. I don't remember exactly what I was doing. I know where I was around that time in my life, uh, which I won't go into all the details. It wasn't really bad or anything. It was just a lot of different new things going on in my life. And I just remember reading this book. And when I was done thinking like, okay, it was good, but I don't know why everybody's making such a big deal of it. And I do recall not just reading the book and getting through it like I did this time. It was like I read a part of it and then I'd put it down for like a week or two. And then I read a little bit because there was just a lot of things I think going on at the time. And I, and I wasn't really like just having the opportunity to just sit down and read it. So I don't think that really helped. Now the second time I'm reading this, I read it pretty much in like a few days and there were actually scenes that in my mind that I remembered that were not in the book. Like there were things that I was like, where's that scene? I could have swore I remember there was a scene where blah, 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 blah happens. And I guess maybe I'm pulling that from other books. I, I don't know. I like the book much better this time. I thought it was great to read. I don't know what I was thinking years ago. Uh, I would not say it's in my top three necessary uh, necessarily. I think one reason is because sometimes I have a problem with uh, first person books, the narrative when it's in a in a fictional, not fictional, but like in a tie-in universe. Uh, I've had that problem with Mm. Star Wars too, even there's been just a couple of those. And it's not that I had a problem with this one as much, but it's just not Star Trek in the sense that it's not, you know, a ship and the crew and they're on an adventure. It's like a side story. It's a side character story from that, which is great, but it's not something that I would put as like, my top five of Star Trek books, but I would put it up there. So that being said, I would give this a field filled with orchids everywhere. Are they poisonous? Beautiful. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> it, Be careful what you plant near those or near those orchids though. Just 
that reading could get very bad very fast. <laughs> and it's very telling that this book is selling for so much mm-hmm. online. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, definitely. Dan. Well, I, yeah, I mean, <laughs> how to follow those, uh, those ratings up. Um, this is a terrific novel. I remember really enjoying it when I was younger and, and thinking it was very good. Um, I hadn't read a ton of Star Trek novels at that time, but you know, now that, you know, I've read t- dozens of them, I, I, wow, I should count how many I've read now, but this one again, yeah, I don't know if it's top three, but it's definitely at least top 10 for me. I have personally a really hard time ranking things. I have, you know, I, I, I don't like competition. I would do very badly at Bamaran, but I really love this novel. I think it's an incredible story. It's a very long story. There's a lot packed in there, but at the same time, there is not one single paragraph that is superfluous in this story. There's nothing I feel that you could take out. You know, this is a tight story. It's a very personal story. And to hear it in Garrick's own words or as close as you could possibly get to that with the voice of Andrew J. Robinson and man, I I can't stress this enough how well he has captured that voice for very obvious reasons. This was just an incredible read, a heck of a lot of fun. And I would have to give it five solid hours in the pit, staring at your opponent uh, before taking him down with a really awesome move because his attention wavered for just a second. It's that feeling. It's that good. (laughs) So uh, to wrap up, uh, Justin, thank you so much for coming on with us. Where can people find you? Well, you can find me elsewhere on the network, co-hosting Earl Grey with Amy Nelson and Richard Marquez. That's our dedicated Next Generation podcast, and we have a lot of fun uh, on that podcast every week. Um, You can find me on Twitter. I'm at TrekFan4747, where I tweet about nothing but Star Trek, uh, currently tweeting out my season four rewatch of The Next Generation. Um, you can find me hanging around the Babel Conference on Facebook. And as I think I've mentioned before, there are um, a couple of uh, Star Trek books and novels um, groups that, that I'm a part of. I think the Star Trek Books Community Group, the Star Trek Books Discussion Group, and literally Star Trek. So you can often find me there posting about the latest thing that I've read. So hope to see people around and talk about Star Trek uh, books. Well, dear doctor, I hope you enjoyed our truthful conversation about Garrick's past. Ah, but what is the truth? You're not going to tell me, are you? Why, doctor, (laughs) everything I tell you is truth, yet a lie. I don't know what I'm saying. (laughs) It's all the truth? It's all the truth. Even the lies? Even the lies. Even the lies are truth. Especially the lies. Especially the lies. (laughs) I want to start, I want to work on a Garrick imitation. That would be, that's a tough one. I have tried in the past and I'm not going to do any kind of actual Garrick impression on this podcast because yeah, no, that's a, that's a tough one. Only Andrew Robinson can capture Garrick's voice. And it turns out that's true on paper as well as in real life. Although Una McCormick also does it, but man, Andrew Robinson's really good at it. Do you think uh, Una McCormick does an imitation of Garrick? We should ask her next time she's on the show. <laughs> you know, I could I could see her doing that. I bet you she does. As she's writing, she at least for sure hears it in her head and, and is doing some mannerisms. That's my guess. Right. Anyway, I would but. think so. Yeah, <laughs> probably.
Well, it's been a lot of fun talking about Una McCormick imitating Garrick, but it's not the only thing that we've been discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. Fan consensus has sort of said, look, third season is terrible and awful and woeful, and a lot of it is. But you go back and you watch it, and there's a lot of it that carries over. Like, there's a lot of stuff that is, I think of, like, as quintessentially Star Trek. Um, that sort of you see develop over the course of the third season. The 602 Club. There was a lot of screaming involved. <laughs> I'll start with. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Snowball! 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 <laughs> yes. No, I know what you mean. No, I did a lot too. of. Oh my god, it's a Demogorgon. Warp 5. He had to learn to not interfere, and it's painful, and that's what makes it such a powerful episode. So this is definitely a see it. Okay, next. All right, all right. Sleeping dogs. While exploring a Skip gas. Skip it. Tra- <laughs> okay. All right. So shadows of the. I think we already know what this one is. <laughs> keep, keep going with the sleeping dogs. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. It's like when Tyler was, you know, explaining the situation and seeing it. And I mean, and he was explaining it to Tyler. It's like he was almost apologizing for it. Like, I had to do this to save my life. And I'm still alive because I did this. But is he suffering guilt for that? And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So be sure to check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an apple eater, then I hope you enjoy your apples. And if you're an apple user, then be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please, please leave us a star rating and written review because it helps people find the show. And if you're not an Apple user, well, we've got you covered as well. And you can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab, just you know, reach out and grab that RSS link. Well, if you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to each week, you don't need to have graduated the Bamarin Institute. You can just become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all of the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, a high-ranking position in the Obsidian Order, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, distribute, and interrogate Procol Dukat on each of these shows each month. And we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all of the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show and all these wonderful things Dan has been saying relating to the book. And there are many ways you can do that. The best place is to join in the larger conversation in the Babel Conference. It's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. 
And if you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website. It's trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks, and it will come straight to us. And you can find us also on Twitter at trekfm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. And special for Literary Treks, we have a Goodreads group where we have bookshelves with all of our previously covered books, as well as the currently reading section, so you know what's coming up for future shows and you can keep up with us. Plus, great conversations happening about all the books and comics in the Star Trek literary universe. Just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click Join Group. There's nothing special about the group, it's just a plain, simple group. We'd like to thank Ken Tripp, Greg Grozier, Brandon Chemutala, and Justin Ozer for their support of the Trek FM network and for being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. Now, Bruce, when you're not busy planting Adosian orchids and hopefully not assassinating a Romulan high-ranking official, where can we find you? You can find me sent to Tarak Norb, where I'm now a tailor. And you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. And you can find me talking Star Wars, especially Star Wars The Last Jedi, on the Star Wars Report at StarWarsReport.com. And, of course, you can always find me in the Babel Conference. And, Dan, when you're not writing three tracks about your life, the past, the present, and not that long ago, where can people find you? Well, you can find me taking a break from doing all that writing and sticking just to just 140 characters or 280 or whatever it is on Twitter now at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can also find me on my YouTube channel. That's at YouTube.com slash Productions, where I talk about, you guessed it, Star Trek. And you can find me on Facebook.com slash Productions, and of course in the Babel Conference. Well, thank you all so much for listening, and until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.